0: Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. All this will not be finished in the first 100 days, nor will it be finished in the first 1,000 days, nor in the life Of this administration nor even perhaps in our lifetime on this planet but let us begin
1: welcome to the abridged presidential histories with kenny ryan episode 35 john f kennedy camelot learning about john f kennedy is kind of like looking at the most popular kid in school the one who was the most handsome or beautiful, whose parents were loaded, whose life seemed perfect. And realizing that just beneath that veneer, their life is kind of a nightmare. Sure, Kennedy will always have the money, the looks, the charm, but he also suffered so many debilitating illnesses that his treatment could accurately be described as torture. And once or twice, he was read his last rites because everybody thought he was about to die. His beautiful marriage was an unhappy one because he couldn't control himself around women. And his ambitious administration was largely a failure. He couldn't get anything past. And yet, still, when we think of John F. Kennedy, we think of Camelot. We think of that perfect picture. We don't see past it. Today, we will look past it at the thrilling highs and tragic lows of John F. Kennedy, the last assassinated president. Joseph P. Kennedy was born on September 6, 1888 in Boston, Massachusetts. And I know what you're thinking, Joseph P. Kennedy? Who the heck is that? Well, Joe is JFK's dad. And as we will see, John Kennedy would never have become president without his father's support and incessant pushing. So we're going to spend a minute with Joe because he is a key part of this story. Joe Kennedy was a Boston-based descendant of Irish immigrants. And you get the sense that, to borrow a line, he was always out to prove he was worth more than anybody bargained for. Now, Joe wasn't first off the boat in his family. By the time he was coming of age, the Kennedys had accrued some advantages. His grandfather had been an immigrant, but his father had been a ward-level political boss in East Boston. He had connections, and Joe? Joe had smarts. Together, that was enough to get Joe admitted to Harvard. And then Joe really kicked it up a notch when he married Rose Fitzgerald the daughter of a Boston mayor who was so smooth, everyone called him Honey Fitz. With the money, education, and connections available to him, Joe Kennedy began plotting a path to the top. The first step was to borrow $45,000, which would be well more than $1 million today to purchase a struggling bank, making Joe the youngest bank president in the United States at 25 years old, and it took off from there. Joe leveraged his position and connections to bring more affluent investors into his bank and earn appointments to influential boards. He learned how to play the stock market, where he made his first millions while the market was on its way up during the 1920s. And then he made millions more, short-selling the market just before the crash that started the Great Depression. He diversified, buying real estate, and becoming one of the first major players in the film industry, and making a killing on liquor sales when Prohibition ended. By the 1930s, Joe Kennedy had the ear of President Roosevelt, and was one of the richest men in America, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The Kennedys were so wealthy that when their kids walked into stores, they learned they could just pick things up and take anything they wanted back home with them, Daddy would pay later. It was enough wealth to buy an ambassadorship to England. But what Joe really wanted was the presidency, and that he would buy for his son. On May 29, 1917, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, also known as Jack, was born in Brookline, Massachusetts, just outside Boston. He was the second of nine children and, importantly, the second son. This meant there were no great expectations for Jack. Everyone knew his older brother, Joe Jr., was the child of destiny. Jr. was athletic, sociable, confident, and he had Joe Sr. behind him. Jack, by comparison, was a shadow. Where Jr. was sociable, Jack was awkward. Where Jr. was confident, Jack was shy. Where Jr. was athletic, Jack was sickly. Oh, boy, was Jack sickly. The first apparition of JFK's future maladies struck when he was 14. Already thin, he suddenly began shedding weight at a dangerous rate until one day he simply collapsed. From that moment forward, intestinal issues were a frequent companion. Stomach cramps, high fever, and vomiting, and nobody could figure out what was causing it. But with Joe Sr.'s money, every effort would be made to find a cure. When Jack was 17, he was snuck away to the Mayo Clinic. For a month of painful and embarrassing tests that frankly might make you lose your lunch if I went into detail. All I'm going to say is, there was a lot of probing. It did eventually lead to a diagnosis, a severe case of spastic colitis, also known as irritable bowel syndrome. There was no cure, but there was a treatment, a treatment that would have disastrous consequences. Jack was told to self-implant experimental hormone pellets under his skin. He would nick his leg with a knife, put a pellet in, and bandage it up. This could treat colitis back then, but if you keep giving your body hormones, your body can learn, hey, this is neat, I no longer have to produce hormones myself. And that's what Jack's body did. As a result, Jack's health only got worse later in life. His spine rotted away resulting in the need for a back brace and causing him pain with every step, which he attempted to alleviate with heavy doses of narcotics. He also developed Addison's disease, which causes nausea, loss of appetite, chronic fatigue, and twice had priests administering last rites before he recovered. The long and short of it is that every moment of Jack's life was pain, and yet he never complained. He learned to cope, by developing a sharp wit to protect himself and later charm others. While these illnesses were enough to knock JFK out of school for months at a time, his father's wealth and connections were enough to make sure he still got into Harvard, where Jack again lived in his older brother's shadow. Junior was an athlete and active in Harvard student government. Jack slept with as many women as he could. Jack is the biggest womanizer we will cover in this show period. Maybe sex was a coping mechanism for his frequent ailments, or maybe he was just copying the example of his father, who flaunted numerous affairs in front of the family. Joe Sr. was such a creeper that he would attempt to seduce his son's girlfriends when they stayed the night at the Kennedy house. This was Jack's father figure. In other words, while other men might become presidents you want to have a beer with, John Kennedy was the president you wanted to sleep with. But again, the presidency was still out of the picture for Jack. That was Joe Jr.'s destiny. But that would soon change. On December 7th, 1941, say it with me, a day that will live in infamy, the United States was attacked by the Empire of Japan, and the Kennedy boys wanted to enlist. Joe Jr. got in no problem, He was picked up by the Air Force and sent off to Europe to fight Nazis from the sky. But Jack, well, what do you think happened when this skinny, sickly twig of a boy showed up at the enlistment office? Have you ever seen the start of Captain America, where Steve Rogers keeps getting rejected by doctors because he's not healthy enough to fight? That's what happened. With all Jack's health problems, there's no way he could fight. But JFK wanted in. So he had Joe Sr. pull some strings and his medical history, a nightmare of hospital stays and suffering, was replaced with a fabricated clean bill of health. Joe Sr. got Jack placed in a naval intelligence desk job where his son's life would never be in danger. About that, Jack didn't just want to serve. He wanted to fight. So he asked his grandfather, Old Honey Fitz, that former mayor of Boston who had his own array of political connections, to see what he could do. And Honey Fitz came through. Jack was assigned to a torpedo boat, known as PT Boats, and deployed to the South Pacific, where he nearly died. On August 1st, 1943, Jack's PT boat was one of 15 sent to ambush a Japanese convoy in the middle of the night, and pretty much everything went wrong. The torpedoes missed their targets, half the boats left, the others got lost in the dark, and then a Japanese destroyer that nobody saw coming, it was that pitch black, appeared out of the gloom and sliced Jack's PT boat in half. Two men died instantly, while Jack and nine others were scattered. Shouting to each other in the darkness, these survivors were grouped around the floating wreckage of their boat. But that started to sink, so they swam for an island three miles away, with Jack towing one injured man by taking the strap of the guy's life jacket in his teeth. And yes, Jack was doing all of this with his wreck of a back. The island was not much of an island. It was more of a sandbar. No food, no trees, no fresh water, just sand. 70 feet of it. But it didn't mean they would drown. For now. Kennedy swam back out to sea with a lantern to try and flag passing boats, but they weren't near any shipping lanes. Nobody was going to find them by chance. If they stayed on that sandbar, they were going to die on that sandbar. So the exhausted men began to swim again, aiming for a larger island and hoping to find water there. They found something better. A small group of natives was on the island with food, water, and a canoe. Jack etched a message on a coconut shell and asked them to take it to a nearby military base. Two days later, the survivors were rescued. It had been seven days since they'd been lost at sea, but they had survived. The American government, looking for heroes and the PR value they brought, served Jack up to the press. And just like that, Jack became a hero. His older brother wouldn't be so lucky. On August 12, 1944, roughly a year after Jack's ordeal, Joe Kennedy Jr. was sent on a bombing mission over Germany, flying a plane equipped with experimental explosives. He never came back. The bombs exploded en route, killing all aboard. The heir apparent was dead. And that's when life changed for Joe and John Kennedy. Within a month of Junior's death, Joe Sr. began plotting Jack's political future. It was a future Jack wasn't sure he wanted, but he knew that didn't matter, saying, quote, It was like being drafted. My father wanted his eldest son in politics. Wanted isn't the right word. He demanded it. If my older brother were alive, I'd never be in this. Joe Sr. wasted little time getting to work. Months after the war's end, Joe approached a local Boston congressman who he knew to be deeply in debt and told the man, if you retire from Congress and run for mayor, I will pay all of your debts and fund your mayoral campaign. That is not an offer you say no to. Just like that, Jack had a vacant seat to run for, but he still had to win it, and nine other candidates threw their hats into the ring, including some decent contenders. Joe couldn't put them all up for mayor. And Jack, he might have been one of the worst candidates of the lot. Sure, Jack was a war hero with a decent resume. Back before the war, Joe Sr. had used his vast fortune to turn Jack's college thesis into a book, and then bought so many copies, it became a bestseller. So Jack is a published bestselling author. Great. The problem is that at this point in his career, Jack had no political charisma. That's right. Probably the most charismatic president in American history was not a natural. He had to learn. Jack, he was a poor speaker. He struggled to remember his lines, and he was terrible at mingling with his audiences. He knew he was awful. During the first few months of the campaign, Jack would often end up at his father's dining table at night, lamenting at how poorly the day's speeches had gone. But Joe would pep him back up, saying things like, I was just on the phone with so-and-so who said the same event last year had 40 people and you had 90. Or, Mr. Who's-his-face said last year's speaker put him to sleep and you were much better. And then his dad would ask, What do you think you could have done better? And the coaching would begin. In the end, Jack won his first race. Not because he was any good at it, but because his dad had spent $270,000, an absurd sum, As Joe said after the race, with the money I spent, I could have elected my chauffeur. But the money was nothing to Joe. Getting a Kennedy to the White House, that was everything. As a congressman, Jack was, above all other things, a pragmatist. Whichever way the wind blew, you could find him there. When the Red Scare was ascendant, he counted men like Richard Nixon and Joseph McCarthy among his friends and allies. When it ebbed, He walked away and found other issues to embrace. If Jack ever took a position that proved unpopular, he would anguish that he'd ruined his career. He had not entered politics because he was an idealist or even really to get anything done. He'd entered politics to become president and coached by his dad, he drifted toward the stances most likely to advance his career. In 1952, the time for his next advancement had arrived. At the encouragement of his father, Jack threw his hat in the ring for the U.S. Senate. Now, this would not be an easy race. The incumbent, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., was an institution. Lodge's father had been one of Theodore Roosevelt's strongest allies and one of Woodrow Wilson's most implacable foes. The Cabots were rich, but but they weren't Kennedy rich. Joe worked the system to get his money into Jack's campaign. He stood up numerous shell committees to flout that the $1,000 individual contribution limit and bet several million dollars on Jack. When Joe learned an influential paper the Boston Post was about to go bankrupt, he lent the Post half a million dollars to keep it afloat, and then it endorsed his son. On the issues, Jack and Lodge weren't that different. They agreed on almost everything. But thanks to his father's coaching and encouragement, Jack had overcome his early discomfort to become a charismatic speaker and a hard campaigner. The introduction of cortisone, which controlled Jack's Addison's disease, gave him the strength to crisscross the state on a grueling schedule. In a campaign where issues were moot, Kennedy had the charisma, the personal touch, and, as President Eisenhower put it, Cabot was simply overwhelmed by money. Once in the Senate, Jack picked up the one thing he absolutely had to have to run for president. A wife! Jack had met Jacqueline Bouvier in 1951 and married her two years later. On the surface, it looked like a perfect marriage. Jackie hailed from another wealthy family and had the charm and beauty that such an upbringing provides. But behind the scenes, it was an unhappy pairing. Jack neglected Jackie for the office. He frequently cheated on her. It wasn't uncommon for him to show up to a party with Jackie and leave with another woman. One summer, JFK was yachting with a friend in the Mediterranean, having multiple affairs along the way, when Jackie, back home in the States, suffered a miscarriage. Jack's response was, oh, too bad. Uh, who are you going to sleep with tonight? He didn't go home until a friend told him a divorce would be bad politics. Two years later, Jack was caught on tape whispering to his brother Ted at Ted's wedding, quote, Being married doesn't really mean you have to be faithful to your wife. But whatever pain Jackie was feeling, she kept it hidden inside. To the public, they were Camelot. Married, rich, and charismatic, Jack sought the vice presidency in 1956. He came up short, but impressed enough people in the party to be a favorite for the top job itself in 1960. There was... Just one problem. The United States had never elected a Catholic president, and quite a few people thought it never should. When Jack's younger brother, Robert, also known as Bobby, took over as campaign manager and performed some research to find the top reason voters might not support Jack, the answers were age. At 42 going on 43, Kennedy would be the youngest person elected if he won. An imperfect liberal voting record, Kennedy really was more of a moderate, if not a conservative and religion, Catholic. Kennedy felt the only way to prove to the Democratic power brokers that if nominated he could win the presidency was to run in the Democratic primaries. Now, the Democratic party had been holding presidential primaries since 1912, but they didn't always matter and not every state held one. As recently as 1952, the candidate who won the most primaries had still lost the party's nomination at the convention. So running in these primaries was a gamble for Kennedy. He could lose and end his campaign, or he could win, and it might not matter. But he was convinced that in 1960, the primaries would determine the presidential nominee. They would offer him a chance to prove the youngest candidate, the moderate candidate, the Catholic candidate could win elections in largely Protestant states. And if he proved that, the national convention just might go his way. So... Kennedy got to work. The first primary was New Hampshire, but that was so close to Massachusetts that nobody ran against Kennedy and he won by default. Boring. The first contested primary was Wisconsin. Kennedy's lone opponent was Hubert Humphrey, the so-called Happy Warrior from neighboring Minnesota. Humphrey was a few years older than Kennedy, he was not Catholic, and he had resoundingly strong liberal credentials so he was well-positioned to capitalize on all of Kennedy's weaknesses. Of the three, Kennedy's Catholicism became the loudest issue, despite Humphrey not touching it. Two days before the primary, the Milwaukee Journal listed the number of voters in each county under three headings, Republicans, Democrats, and Catholics. Joe Kennedy's lavish spending may again have decided the race, Jack won by 12 points in the polls, but a careful look at the results showed that Kennedy had indeed performed best in Catholic counties and worse in Protestant counties, which was concerning for Jack, because the next primary was West Virginia, where Catholics made up only 4% of the population. Everybody knew this was going to be the make-or-bake primary of the season, and Kennedy started polling strong, with 40% of the vote to Humphrey's 30 But then local newspapers started writing more about Kennedy's Catholicism, and his support cratered. He went from polling at 70% to polling at 40%. In case anybody wasn't sure what was going on, when Bobby Kennedy asked a room full of supporters what the problem was, one yelled back, There's one problem! He's a Catholic! That's our goddamn problem! Kennedy responded by spending more time with voters and more money everywhere. And that proved decisive. Kennedy rallied to win 60% of the vote in West Virginia, and Hubert Humphrey dropped out of the race that night. But there was one last obstacle. A man who hadn't even competed in the primaries. A man who had strong institutional democratic support. A man who Kennedy had nearly run as vice president with back in 1956. Lyndon Baines Johnson. LBJ. For most of the 1950s, LBJ, a Texas senator, had used his charm and guile to turn the traditionally unimportant role of Senate party leader into the most powerful Democratic position in Washington. In 1956, Joe Kennedy had approached LBJ with a proposition. If LBJ would run for president with Jack on his ticket as vice, Joe would bankroll the entire campaign. But LBJ didn't think Eisenhower could be beat in 1956, so he said no, earning the eternal disdain of the Kennedys. And that disdain got worse when, five days before the 1960 Democratic convention, after skipping all the primaries. LBJ formally declared his candidacy for the nomination and then had his partisans leak word that John F. Kennedy suffered from Addison's disease. Kennedy knew that if the public learned the extent of his health problems, he would never be elected president. So his campaign denied it. They lied, and whatever LBJ's sources were, he wasn't willing to expose them. So without proof, the allegation was forgotten by the skin of his teeth. John F. Kennedy won the Democratic nomination for president on the first ballot of the party's convention. The secret sauce in the end had been his primary wins and Joe Kennedy's money, which had stood up pro-Kennedy organizations in every state across the country, ensuring even states without primaries were strongly pro-Kennedy at the convention. So now Kennedy had to choose a vice president. And this is where you could see how coolly pragmatic the Kennedys could be. For the vice presidency, Kennedy turned to the man he'd just defeated, L.B.J. Sure, most of the Kennedys couldn't stand Lyndon at this point, but they also knew they couldn't win without Texas. And Johnson could deliver Texas. The Republicans nominated Richard Nixon, Ike's vice president, to be their party standard bearer. For VP, Nixon tapped JFK's old rival from Massachusetts, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., the man Kennedy had defeated for his Senate seat. As the rival tickets took shape, Kennedy was shocked to see Nixon performing better than expected in the polls, and he felt his Catholicism again must be to blame. So he decided to tackle the issue head on. On September 12, 1960, Kennedy gave a televised speech to a room of 300 Protestant ministers in Houston, ignoring the advice of many who feared the ministers would be hostile no matter what he said. But Kennedy was nothing if not charming, and he won the crowd over, saying,
0: I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president, who happens also to be a Catholic. I do not speak for my church on public matters. And the church does not speak for me.
1: This didn't mean the Catholic issue was gone, but it helped. A lot. Though the debate probably helped more. After the Houston speech, Kennedy challenged Nixon to a series of televised presidential debates. Eisenhower warned Nixon not to do it, but Nixon was a skilled debater and confident he could get the better of Kennedy on the issues. So he said yes. This proved costly. The first debate... September 26th in Chicago, the first televised presidential debate ever was a disaster for Richard Nixon. The problem was all in the optics. Kennedy appeared cool, confident, and in control. Nixon slouched, looked shadowy and shifty, and he sweat a lot. At the end of the night, Radio listeners thought Nixon had displayed a mastery of the issues, but the television audience thought Kennedy had looked more trustworthy, confident, and presidential. Given that 70% of eligible voters had watched the debate on TV, this had a huge impact. The debate was seen as such a mistake by Nixon, nobody would risk another presidential debate for 16 years. But there was one final curveball for the candidates to navigate. One final October surprise that threatened to upset everything. Two weeks before the election, October 19th, 1960, Martin Luther King Jr., the prominent civil rights leader and minister, was arrested in Atlanta, Georgia during a peaceful protest at a department store and sentenced to four months of jail and hard labor. King's pregnant wife, Loretta, feared he might be killed in prison, a threat that, yeah, was totally real, and she reached out to both campaigns. Nixon's and Kennedy's, to see if either candidate could get her husband free. Nixon, who had met and was on good terms with King, did nothing. Kennedy, who had never really shown much interest in African Americans or civil rights, called Loretta back and said his campaign would see what it could do. When Bobby Kennedy heard that Jack had promised to help, he blew his top. Southern whites would not forgive this. He thought the race had just been lost, but he followed through on the pledge to help and made a call to the judge, who would let it be known that he would set King free if anyone leaned on him, and King was released from prison. When election day came a few days later, African American voters in key swing states did not forget which campaign had helped and which had stood silent when King had been in prison. The final vote was incredibly close. Kennedy won 34.2 to 34.1 million in the popular vote and 303 to 219 in the Electoral College. But the results in several states were quickly contested by Nixon's partisans. In Texas, everyone assumed LBJ had rigged the vote. In Illinois, the state's Democratic governor had declared a Kennedy victory before all the ballots had even been cast. Nixon would privately growl the race had been stolen from him but GOP recounts only confirmed the declared results. Kennedy had won, Nixon had lost, but he'll be back. And so, on January 20th, 1961... 43 year old John F. Kennedy, the war hero, womanizer, and spoiled son of Joe Kennedy, became the 35th President of the United States, the first Catholic and youngest person ever elected to that role. Theodore Roosevelt was younger when he became president, but older when he won his first presidential election. But what did the world and the country look like when Kennedy became president? Let's look around. internationally european colonialism was dying 36 new countries had broken free of their imperial overlords in africa and southeast asia in the 16 years since the end of world war ii this wasn't just a case of europe letting the horses out of the barn though this required struggle grit and more than a few wars of independence as jfk was being sworn in France was waging a brutal war against Algerian freedom fighters, and horrified Americans thanked their lucky stars that they would never be so foolish as to get involved in a guerrilla war like that. (laughs) Ha ha! Domestically, Hawaii and Alaska finally became states in 1959, bringing us to our current 50 nifty United States. In entertainment... Alfred Hitchcock's famous thriller Psycho and Harper Lee's classic To Kill a Mockingbird were released and published in 1960. And politically, civil rights was moving from the back page to the front page of America's conscience in a big way. Rosa Parks had refused to give up her seat on a bus five years earlier, triggering the Montgomery bus boycott and the political emergence of Martin Luther King Jr., who was not going to be satisfied with the mere desegregation of buses in Montgomery, Alabama. Kennedy did almost nothing to address his domestic concerns. Seriously, the guy's legislative accomplishments are quite minor. He whiffed on the big stuff. And some things that were entirely in his control, he dragged his feet on. Like, desegregating housing. He had campaigned for president on the promise to desegregate housing, quote, at the stroke of a pen. But he was so slow to act that thousands of people started mailing him pens to prod him along. It took him 21 months to do even this. But if the domestic front was a quiet one, the international sphere was a five-alarm fire that nearly plunged the world into nuclear war. And it started with Cuba. Okay, so what's going on in Cuba? Well, when we last left Cuba, Theodore Roosevelt and the Rough Riders and a whole lot of other folks had just kicked the Spanish off the island during the Spanish-American War around 1900. The United States had then granted Cuba independence with conditions. We got to keep Guantanamo Bay and we could intervene militarily whenever we wanted. And it turned out we wanted. Frequently, American troops were deployed to Cuba to put down unrest and defend American business interests in 1906, 1912, and 1916. And to be fair, there was quite a bit of unrest. Numerous revolts rocked the island until a military dictator named Batista, who had basically been running the island since 1933, officially kicked democracy out the window and took charge in 1952 a move President Eisenhower allowed so long as American business interests were protected. That did not sit well with a young revolutionary named Fidel Castro, who spent several years leading a guerrilla war against Batista before emerging victorious and seizing power in 1959. Once in charge, Castro initially tried to charm the Americans, But he also nationalized all American holdings on the island without paying a penny for the assets seized. And remember how I kept saying the only thing Americans really cared about in Cuba was their business interests? Yeah, this ticked Eisenhower off. Ike cut trade with Cuba, so Castro turned to the Soviet Union for trade and protection. Eisenhower responded by cutting diplomatic ties in January 1961, weeks before Kennedy's inauguration. And that's why, two days after entering office, the CIA approached Kennedy with a plan to invade Cuba. The CIA's pitch went like this. Hey, Kennedy, remember that uh, 1953 coup in Iran? That was us. How about that 1954 coup in Guatemala? That was also us. Congo, 1960? We're really good at this. And Cuba's next. We have an army of Cuban exiles camped out in Guatemala that have been training for an invasion. All they need is money for boats to get them to the beaches, and then dissidents on the island will join them and overthrow Castro in days. And if we don't do it, those exiles will tell the press that we called off their secret invasion, and the American people will think you've gone soft on Castro. Also, uh, did you know that Eisenhower personally endorsed this plan? So, when do we go? We'd like to land the exiles at a place called Bay of Pigs. Kennedy was dubious. The State Department warned him the idea was crazy and would have major consequences at the UN and throughout Latin America. The U.S. Army told JFK the plan should work. What it didn't tell Kennedy is the army only felt that way because they thought the beach landing would be such a fiasco that Kennedy would then be forced to send in the actual U.S. military, and that was a fight the U.S. could win. When Kennedy described the CIA's plans to Truman's old Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, Acheson replied, Are you serious? And then Acheson asked Kennedy, How many exiles could the CIA land? nearly 1,500, Kennedy replied. And how many men does Castro command? 25,000, Kennedy replied. And then Atchison said, it doesn't take Price Waterhouse to figure out that 1,500 aren't as good as 25,000. Which was a good point. But Kennedy gave the go-ahead anyway. On April 15th, 1961, Eight B-26 bombers, painted in the colors of Cuba's air force and flying from Nicaragua, kicked off the operation by bombing Castro's airfields. But problems began immediately. This bombing run was supposed to neutralize Castro's air force, but it only damaged five of Castro's 36 planes, which meant Castro's planes would be in the air when the exiles landed. One of the American B-26s flew to Miami, where its CIA-trained pilot declared himself a defector fleeing Cuba, a key part of the cover story to make this look like an uprising, a revolt against Castro. But the story quickly crumbled. The press, they had heard the rumors of American-trained Cuban exiles mustering in Nicaragua. It had been in the friggin' newspapers. When the invasion landed two days later, it never got off the beaches. As the operation fell apart, the U.S. Army pressed Kennedy to launch a real invasion with American troops, but Kennedy had seen quite enough and stood firm. He wouldn't let his first mistake become a bigger one. Instead, he confessed what the whole world had already figured out. The United States was responsible for the Bay of Pigs. The crazy thing is, though, when Jack went on national TV and explained himself, the American people forgave him. Shoot, his approval rating actually went up. But the rest of the world, well, consequences were coming. But first, eight months later, December 1961, Jack's father, Joe Kennedy, suffered a stroke that left him half paralyzed and unable to speak clearly. The first two days after the stroke, he couldn't even recognize his own son. Joe spent his final eight years an invalid, something that must have been shocking for Jack to witness, and also something that just feels so tragic being laid so low after Joe's life work putting a Kennedy in the White House had finally been realized. Daddy Kennedy would not be around to bail his son out of hot water anymore. And hot water was about to boil over. In the autumn of 1962, Soviet Union Premier Nikita Khrushchev who had vowed after the Bay of Pigs to give Cuba, quote, all necessary help to repel armed attack, decided that help should come in the form of nuclear warheads. 40 nuclear missiles, 40,000 troops, and a naval base with nuclear-armed submarines was Khrushchev's plan for Cuba. And this wasn't just about defending Cuba. Khrushchev was relatively new in his role, and he wanted to look strong for his audience at home and around the world. Khrushchev hoped to sneak everything into Cuba secretly and then demand American concessions. Just picture Dr. Evil bribing world leaders for one million dollars. For Khrushchev's plan to work, it had to be a surprise. But then the Americans found out. On October 14th, 1962... Acting on reports from intelligence, a U-2 spy plane flew over Cuba and confirmed the presence of offensive nuclear weapons and the ongoing construction of pads they could be launched from. Kennedy was informed two days later, October 16th. It was estimated the missiles would be ready to launch in days. Kennedy was in a pickle. He had publicly vowed to never allow nukes in Cuba, so he had no wiggle room here. He could not allow the nukes to stay. But now that the Soviets were building launch pads, what could he do to stop them? He was presented with three options. First, do nothing. This ain't worth a shooting war. Advisors pointed out the United States had recently deployed similar nuclear missiles in Turkey, which is close to Russia, so this was kind of just the Soviets matching an American move with their own. Second option. This is totally worth a shooting war. Hit him hard. Hit him now. Hit him without warning. Let's launch a surprise attack. Option three, declare a blockade around the islands and search any ship that wants to go through until the nukes are removed. At first, Kennedy favored the surprise attack. But then his brother Bobby, who Jack had appointed attorney general, passed him a note that read, I now know how Tojo felt when he was planning Pearl Harbor. And Bobby stood up and gave an impassioned speech against a surprise attack, saying it would be Pearl Harbor again, but this time with unprovoked Americans dropping the bombs. This convinced JFK. On Monday, October 22nd, six days after the presence of nukes was confirmed, he announced publicly a quarantine of Cuba. The Navy would be deployed. Any ships approaching the quarantine line would be searched. U-2 flights would continue over Cuba, and if any were shot down, the offending SAM site would be bombed in retaliation. With that announcement, the world was on notice. The Cuban Missile Crisis had begun. The first test of the quarantine line came two mornings later, October 24th, when the first Soviet ships were tracking to reach the line. For Kennedy, this was a morning of anxiety. He was supposed to be the most powerful person in the world, but he was powerless, waiting to hear if World War III had started in the Caribbean. Then, word came through. The Russian vessels had begun to turn around. It wouldn't be war, yet. But there were still more Soviet ships on the way, still nukes on the island, and launch pads were still under construction. In fact, U-2 flights confirmed construction had sped up. Kennedy's military advisors were again advising him to attack. But Kennedy kept putting that off. He wouldn't let the Russians get their launch pads up and running. But he wasn't going to bomb them until the last possible moment. He needed to give peace a chance. He needed to give Khrushchev time to think. On Friday, October 26, Khrushchev's thinking on this game of nuclear chicken turned into panic. A long and rambling letter from Khrushchev arrived at the White House. Khrushchev was willing to remove the missiles from Cuba if Kennedy vowed to never invade the island. Kennedy was relieved. An exchange of no missiles for a promise of no invasion? That's a deal! But before he could celebrate, a second, more polished letter came through, with tougher demands. And this time, it was shared publicly by the Russians. Khrushchev repeated the earlier deal. No missiles, no invasion, but he added another requirement. The United States must remove nuclear missiles from Turkey. It had to be a fair trade. What to do about this? Kennedy, he had been thinking about removing the missiles from Turkey anyway. The ones they'd put there were obsolete models, and the United States had other, newer nukes in similar positions around the Soviet Union. But if Jack agreed to do it as part of a deal for removing nukes from Cuba... Europe would feel betrayed, and the NATO alliance would be undermined. The world would think the United States had been bullied into removing its missiles from Turkey. So what to do? And then Jack and his advisors landed on a solution. Publicly, they would accept the first letter and ignore the second letter and its requirement to remove the missiles from Turkey. But privately, Bobby Kennedy would tell the Russian ambassador that if the missiles were removed from Cuba the United States would likely probably remove its missiles from Turkey if Russia kept that part of the deal secret. But before Bobby could even have this conversation with the ambassador, boom, the Cubans shot down an American U-2 spy plane out of the sky. You know what the Joint Chiefs were saying. The Russians have fired first. This is our excuse. Send the troops against Cuba now. But Kennedy again held firm, at some point commenting, These brass hats have one great advantage in their favor. If we do what they want us to do, none of us will be alive later to tell them they were wrong. Despite Kennedy's earlier threat that if any U2s were shot down, he would retaliate against the SAM site, Jack let it slide. Bobby Kennedy's meeting with the Russian ambassador went forward as planned. But after the meeting, Bobby reported back to Jack. It had not gone well. That night, Jack went to bed knowing American bombers with Soviet targets were circling the Arctic waiting for a go-ahead, American destroyers and Russian subs were stalking each other in the Caribbean, and U.S. Marines were boarding landing ships in the Gulf of Mexico ready to invade Cuba if the order came. Cuba's nuclear launch pads were almost ready. Time would soon run out. If Khrushchev didn't accept Jack's offer the following morning, it could all be over. All eyes were on the last Russian ship approaching the quarantine line, tracking to hit it around 8 a.m. Would it be war or peace? Then, just before the Russian ship reached the line, it stopped. A news bulletin flashed Khrushchev had accepted Kennedy's public offer. The Russians would remove their missiles from Cuba if the Americans promised to never invade the island. Secretly, the outdated American missiles in Turkey would also be removed at a later date. And everyone let out a deep breath. Everyone, except the Joint Chiefs, who I kid you not were still telling Kennedy to attack Cuba and insisting he'd been duped. It's like they were all auditioning for roles in Dr. Strangelove. Goodness. The Cuban Missile Crisis is the closest the world has ever come to nuclear war. Would it have happened if Kennedy hadn't ordered the Bay of Pigs? I don't know. Would Kennedy have had the courage to stand up to his military advisors if they hadn't failed him during the Bay of Pigs? Probably not. All I know for sure is it's a heck of a story. But this would not be the last international incident in which John F. Kennedy played a starring role. Because half a world away, in Vietnam, things were getting bad. Remember, Vietnam had tried to declare independence from France in 1945 and cozy up to the United States, only for the French to threaten to join the Soviet orbit if the Americans didn't stay out of the fight. So we stayed out. And Vietnamese leader Ho Chi Minh said, well, if the Americans won't support us, maybe the Soviets will. As it turned out, the Soviets would. With help from Russia, Ho Chi Minh defeated France and accepted a peace treaty that split Vietnam in two, a communist North and a capitalist South. When the South refused to hold a promised referendum about reunification, because it knew it would likely lose the vote, the North realized reunification would have to happen by force. And so force was brought to bear. Eisenhower had sent money, supplies, and a limited number of advisors, basically engineers who could make the equipment work, to support the South in this guerrilla war against Northern infiltrators and sympathizers, the Viet Cong. And that's what Kennedy inherited in 1961, a civil war in Vietnam with 685 American advisors in the field. By 1963, that war was going badly. Kennedy had increased the number of American advisors from 685 to 11,300, and he had increased funding for civics projects intended to show the benefits of democracy to the Vietnamese people. But money and soldiers could do nothing to shore up the rot in South Vietnam's government. South Vietnam was led by a military dictator named Ngo Dinh Xian, who had taken over after the French left. Xian ran the country as a family operation. His brother, No, commanded a secret police and was every bit as brutal as any communist dictator. And his wife, Madame No, was an anti Buddhist zealot who once told an American journalist Vietnam has no use for your crazy freedoms. Kennedy wanted to get out of Vietnam, but he feared he'd never be reelected if he did. So he looked for solutions instead. And that's what led him to the coup of 63. In the summer of 1963, South Vietnamese Buddhists were protesting the anti-Buddhist dictatorship of Xian, Brother No, and Madame No. But these weren't like any protest you've seen. Buddhist monks would douse themselves in kerosene and light themselves on fire in the streets. Xian responded with a crackdown and roundup of 14,000 Buddhists. Martial law was imposed, and public meetings were forbidden. When college students joined the Buddhist protesters, Xi'an shut down the universities. When high schoolers walked out in protest, he closed all the schools. JFK should have seized this opportunity to cut bait and withdraw from Vietnam. Instead, he sent his old rival, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., to South Vietnam as the new American ambassador. Lodge told Xi'an to cut the anti-Buddhist bullshit. When Xi'an didn't, Kennedy had Lodge sound out South Vietnamese generals on the idea of a coup. They were receptive. Kennedy danced around the idea for a couple weeks, sometimes preferring it, sometimes leaning away. The last message he had Lodge relay to the plotters was the US would not endorse a coup, but it wouldn't stop one either. On November 1st, 1963, the generals launched a coup. Zien and Brother No were captured at a church they had taken refuge in and murdered the following day. Madame No survived. She was out of the country when the generals struck. When Kennedy learned Zien had been murdered, he was shocked.
2: Monday, November 4th, 1963. The, uh, over the weekend, the uh, coup in Saigon took place culminated uh, three months of uh, conversation about a coup comma conversation which divided the government here and in Saigon I uh, feel that uh, we must bear a good deal of responsibility for it beginning with our cable of early August in which we suggested the coup I was a uh, shocked by the death of Zim and knew. I'd met Zim with Justice Douglas many years ago. He was a extraordinary character while he became increasingly difficult in the last months. Nevertheless, over a 10-year period, he'd held his country together, maintained its independence under very adverse conditions. The, the way he was killed made it particularly important question now is whether the generals can stay together and build a stable government, or whether Saigon will begin to turn on public opinion in Saigon. Intellectuals, students, etc., will turn on this government as repressive and undemocratic in the not too distant future.
1: The answer to that last question is: the public would indeed turn on the new government. South Vietnam would never be stable again. But that would not be Kennedy's problem. Because less than a month later, on November 22, 1963, John F. Kennedy was driving through Dallas in an open motorcade when Lee Harvey Oswald, a nobody, former Marine, fired three shots at Kennedy from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. The first shot missed. The second hit Kennedy and should have knocked him over and out of the assassin's view, but the back brace that Jack wore for his Addison's disease kept him upright. And that's when a third bullet hit him in the back of the head. Some people try to build up conspiracy theories around this assassination. Personally, I don't buy any of it. Sometimes the easiest explanation is the best one. Oswald acted alone just like the assassins of President Garfield and President McKinley had acted alone, and the idiots who shot or tried to shoot Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and Ronald Reagan. These were all lone gunmen. It's tragically easy to buy a gun and kill someone in this country. It's natural to think that life can't be this random, that some loser with a gun could murder a president and change the course of history. But they can. They do. It happened in Dallas. John F. Kennedy was only 46 years old. And the next car back, riding behind Kennedy that faithful day in Dallas, Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson was pressed to the floor by his protection detail and sped to safety. A national crisis, Jack's stalled agenda, and a war in Vietnam were all going to be his problem soon enough. So how had the United States changed during the three years of the Kennedy administration? Well, there is one other big domestic story and one other big international story I want to hit on before we go. Domestically, I want to talk about James Meredith. Meredith was an Air Force veteran who wanted to attend college at Ole Miss, but the university and the governor wanted to keep him out. Why? Because he was black. Meredith sued and took his case to the Supreme Court, which ruled in 1962 that he must be admitted to the university. This caused a riot to break out at Ole Miss. An angry mob of whites attacked U.S. Marshals who had been stationed to protect Meredith. 206 Marshals were injured, 200 rioters were arrested, and two died. Meredith was finally allowed to register for courses days later and protected by federal troops for more than a year. He graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1963, and his statue now stands on Ole Miss's campus, honoring his successful integration of the university. But it continues to be a target for vandalism. As recently as 2014, a noose was found around the neck of the statue of James Meredith. Civil rights man, this is not that long ago. Internationally, the Kennedy administration is when the Berlin Wall went up. Berlin had been a flashpoint of East West tension since the end of World War II. We all remember when Stalin imposed a blockade and Truman ordered the Berlin airlift to save the city in 1948. Well, Access had been restored, but the Russians and Americans always seemed to be one foolish mistake away from going to war there, and the Soviets were especially ticked off because their citizens kept defecting through the city to the American side. So, in 1961, Khrushchev, in his desperation, ordered the building of the Berlin Wall. Nobody would easily escape the Soviet Union again. The Germans, the Americans, and the world were outraged but Kennedy saw the wall as a gift. As long as it stood, it would serve as a reminder that the Soviet Union needed walls to keep its people in, and the United States and the Soviet Union would never near blows over Berlin again. As Kennedy put it, a wall is a hell of a lot better than a wall. Beyond the big stories, the Kennedy years were also a busy time for the Supreme Court. In Map v. Ohio, the Supreme Court ruled illegally obtained materials could not be used at trial. Somehow that wasn't a rule yet. And in Engel v. Vital, the court ruled public institutions such as school systems could not require prayer. So what can we learn from John F. Kennedy? I think Kennedy teaches us the value of good PR. There were not a lot of wins during Kennedy's years in office. He resisted his general's calls to start World War III during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he helped start the Peace Corps, but that's about it. What Kennedy did have was weekly press conferences where he spoke directly to the American people, apologizing for his mistakes and explaining his decisions. After he died, his acolytes told the brightest possible version of the John F. Kennedy story, glossing over the womanizing lies and failures and portraying Kennedy as a liberal champion Something he just wasn't. But hey, leading is often about messaging. And Kennedy shows us that sometimes the story you tell is the story people remember. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard, Fife, and Drum Corps. The primary biography for today's episode was An Unfinished Life, John F. Kennedy, 1917-1963 to 1963 by Robert Dalek. In our next episode, we're doing something special. In two days, November 22nd, 2023, it will be the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination. I'm going to put out a special interview that day with Stephen Fagan, the curator of the Sixth Floor Museum on Dealey Plaza. Yes, that Dealey Plaza. The old Texas school book depository that Oswald assassinated JFK from is now a museum, and I must say, a very good one. So, on November 22nd, 2023, we will look back. 60 years back, at what happened that day in Dallas and why it has become subject to so much doubt and so many conspiracy theories. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.